A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. Welcome to Data Mesh Radio with your host, Scott Hurlman, sponsored by Starburst. This is Adrian Estala, VP and Field CDO at Starburst and host of Data Mesh TV. Starburst is the leading contributor to Trino, the open source project, and the Data Mesh for Dummies book that I co-wrote with Colleen Tarto and Andy Mott. To claim your free book, head over to starburst.io. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs, in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. Choose your blast radius and other lessons learned across tens of data mesh implementations. Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Wanya Seth, head of technology for ThoughtWorks India and the global data mesh guild lead for ThoughtWorks. To be clear, though, she was only representing her own view in this episode. So what are some key takeaways or thoughts from Wanya's point of view? As I said, you know, in the title, they being the guild lead for ThoughtWorks across so many different data mesh implementations at ThoughtWorks. There's a, kind of a lot of learnings from her own work as well as across the uh, the different uh, implementations from the, the company with many, many different clients. So number one, data mesh is at a similar inflection point to where microservices was a decade ago. Let's not relearn all the hard lessons they already learned. We should adapt or contextualize to data, of course, but we can skip a lot of the anti-patterns or we can really look at what was learned and (laughs) not make the same mistakes. Number two, similarly, many people are stuck thinking, you know, kind of that there's no way that could work regarding data mesh like they were when people suggested development and operations be combined into DevOps. It's understandable. It's hard to imagine a post-monolithic world when all you've known is monoliths. Number three, potentially controversial, we should try hard to prevent creating the fear of missing out, you know, that FOMO for those not doing data mesh. If data mesh isn't right for your org, especially if it isn't right at this time, that's perfectly okay. Don't take on the overhead cost of data mesh if it won't bring more value than cost. You know, and a note from me is just basically preach. (laughs) Number four, 
potentially another controversial one. Some CDOs or CAOs, their, their organizations don't really get the value of data. So they're implementing data mesh to try and prove out value in general of data as a function and make their mark. That can obviously create issues if their organizations aren't actually ready to do data mesh to take advantage of, of what you can do when you uh, properly implement as well. Number five, a few indicators an organization is ready for data mesh. There's more expanded contacts in the show note, but you know, A, data AI investments are not delivering the promised or expected returns and or it's hard to point to the value delivered in general from data and AI investments. B, the organization is attempting to throw more people at centralized data management and it's not working, right? Platform included. And C, there's extremely unclear ownership around aspects of data, especially who owns aspects of handoffs or who owns the end data asset. How can a consumer actually ask a question about the data with no clear owner? Number six, something that uh, Wanya kind of her, her phrasing for this is innovation in Q syndrome, right? Your innovation agenda is in Q and keeps getting deprioritized because you are dealing with everything else first to keep your just your data practice up and running. Number seven, use value stream mapping to understand how your organization drives value from business processes and where there is value leakage. It's especially useful if data work isn't driving the value you expect or if you can't understand why this didn't actually achieve the results you thought it should. Number eight, we should take a lot of learnings in how microservices service discovery evolved, especially the tooling, you know, when we think about what we need for data mesh. There's no re need to reinvent the wheel on kind of service discovery of data products. Number nine, some existing tooling from the microservices space is just fine as is for data mesh. We don't need to invent new tools when existing ones, which are already robust and mature, can be extended or even used as is. Number 10, platforms aren't about the tooling. They're about the holistic user experience. How do you stitch things together to automate away the toil and let users focus on what matters? The tooling is under the hood, not the actual interface that, that users actually experience. Number 11, users of your various data platforms should not be directly interacting with tools for the most part. It should be about abstracting away the tools and making it easy to use them to interact with data, not the tools, right? You want them interacting with the data, with the information, not the tools. Number 12, I think this one's crucial. Choose your blast radius. This was something that Wanya had said. Far too many are looking to change the entire organization at the start of a data mesh journey instead of limiting scope to a reasonable level. Find one kind of courageous domain to move forward. You don't have to try and put everything in place before you actually start moving. That's, that's how you set yourself down a path of what your vision is instead of actually experimenting and learn. Number 13, uh, Vanya also said, nothing succeeds like success itself. Get to a data mesh win or two that you can tout quickly so others will get bought in and see value and want to participate. Incremental value delivery builds interest and momentum. Number 14, build your platform at the same time as you're building your initial data products. 
Far too many platforms are built with tools as the focus instead of automating away toil and focusing on necessary capabilities. This one comes up so, so often. I think it's a major anti-pattern to build your platform extensively before you get going. You know, you can build little components, you can kind of figure that stuff out, but don't get ahead of yourself. Number 15, another, I think, very crucial point, evolvability should be a first-class concern when building your platform. Just like with any product, you must be able to continue to improve and change to meet needs. Number 16, focus on the abstractions and the ubiquitous language, such as business people don't care what the technical underpinnings of a data product are. They care about what it means for them and how they can access and leverage it. Number 17, when starting your data mesh journey, look at the use cases to decide how much of each pillar you really need. Don't overbuild early. If you only need a minuscule amount of governance, great. If you don't actually need the producing team to be overly involved in ownership, awesome. Don't go for full data mesh at the start. Finally, number 18, you should focus on what you should focus on relative to your journey in the early days is unique to your own situation and your use cases. Don't worry about how competitors are or others are exactly starting. Their circumstances are their own. There are some things that you can draw through lines through, but if you try to copy paste somebody else's implementation journey, you're, you're going to head down a bad path. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very, very excited for today's episode here. I've got Vanya Seth, who is the head of technology at ThoughtWorks India and also the global data mesh guild lead for ThoughtWorks in general. And so, you know, she's been collecting a lot of this awesome information from other ThoughtWorkers and kind of uh, working with them. Uh, to be clear, though, she's only representing her own views. These aren't specifically the views of ThoughtWorks as kind of every other ThoughtWorker that's been on, same thing. But um, that means that we can be a little bit more candid, which I'm pretty excited about. We're going to be talking about a lot of different things around kind of getting started doing data mesh, right? Like what has ThoughtWorks learned from having worked with so many different uh, organizations? What what has uh, Vanya specifically worked, you know, seen from her own work with, with clients and as well as being the guild lead and just kind of <laughs> where are some places to avoid? Where are some places to be smart? Where are some places to spend a little bit more time than you might think? Or where are some things where people feel like this is going to be the most important decision and it's just not? So, <laughs> uh, but before we jump into that conversation, if you don't mind, uh, Vanya, if you could give people a bit of uh, introduction to yourself and then we can jump into the conversation at hand. Thank you so much, Scott, for having me on your podcast. Uh, hello, everyone. My, myself, Vanya, and I'm the head of technology for ThoughtWorks India, as Scott mentioned. And besides that, I'm also the guild lead for Data Mesh at ThoughtWorks. And just to give a bit of background about myself, uh, I have been a microservices developer for as long as I remember when I started my career back in 
2009. So I think I'm a cloud native technologist. I was born in the era of uh, cloud. So I, I understand cloud deeply. And that's the reason I consult a lot of our clients at ThoughtWorks on digitally transforming their ecosystem from people, process, and technology perspective. So I think I can um, say confidently that I bring in a lot of microservices perspective. And that's when I was making my journey into the data mesh ecosystem. That sort of parallel really helped me a lot, right? And uh, that's the reason I sort of got excited about this topic. And uh, today I'm doing what I love, which is consulting our clients on bootstrapping their journeys to become a data-driven organization by leveraging data mesh as a paradigm. So excited to be here. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that it's funny how often um, people that are um, kind of leading a lot of the data mesh uh, implementation and, and kind of thought leadership and, and all that aspect of it come from the microservices world because it has been like... I'm hoping that uh, I just started to see people that are talking about data mesh engineers and I never really saw microservices engineers. I don't know if that was ever a title, but DevOps engineers definitely were a title and it's like, no. And and that's kind of transitioned into to platform engineering, but let, let's talk about what, what went well with microservices and like start with that. There was just this big industry journey. Like how do we prevent, we're already somewhat along the path to some data mesh implementations, but we're still very, very early days, right? Really, this started to pick up in maybe August, September of 2021 is when when interest really started to pick up. And so, um, you know, we've most companies aren't in year two or year three of their implementation and microservices a lot have said, well, we've kind of started to really figure those out in the last year or two. And it's like, okay, but it came out in 20, 2009, you know, 2010. So <laughs> like, let's talk about what have we learned from microservices and what, what of messes can we look to avoid or what patterns can we see that we should be like, this was a pattern we went down the wrong path of. Let's let's go somewhere else. Fantastic. I think that's a great uh, question, uh, Scott. And I often use this as a very interesting uh, introduction to, to data mesh that today data mesh is at the same inflection point as was microservices about a decade ago, right? And you remember the reaction from the people when we used to tell them from a microservices standpoint that, now you need to think about your developers and your ops people working together. What? Are you kidding me? How is that going to happen? Right? So those were the sort of questions that used to sort of come up, right? Because people were so tuned to how does a monolithic system look like? How does long cycles of development look like? And then how that big compiled code and all was passed on to the operations team to sort of deploy, right? And with the microservices movement and specifically with the DevOps aspect and mindset sort of uh, settling into the industry, we saw that shift, right? We saw people cross that chasm of no ops people and the developers cannot work together. They have to be two different departments and you know, you have to throw that jar over the wall to sort of, you know, getting deployed. And I see a very similar journey for data mesh as well, right? People, people do get flustered and they get challenged and intrigued that how on this earth are you telling me that my data producers should also start to own the insights that their data can generate, right? And that's a very important shift for them because 
it's about decentralization of ownership. And that, as an argument, doesn't fit well in a lot of people's uh, mindset because they are so tuned to only look at operational systems as their purview of ownership. But it's so hard for them to understand that the entire spectrum of their data is what they own, right? So it's a very similar comparison to how microservices were, say, 10 years ago, right? So that's one thing that I would like to really, really uh, call out. Um, on the on the path of what sort of journey that I would want not to have for data mesh, that learnings from the microservices ecosystem, I think I think the fact that when people got really, really excited about microservices and it started to sort of settle down in the in the industry as a as a mainstream technology, that there was that uh, you know FOMO, fear of missing out on not doing microservices, and if you were not doing microservices you were not cool enough or you were not the place where, you know, the great developers or awesome developers would want to work. And then every organization, with, despite of the fact whether they needed that sort of a, a tax to be paid from a technology perspective, jumped right into it, right? Because of that fear of missing out or because of not being touted as cool, right? And And that's exactly where I would, you know, sort of put my foot down and say that, if you are taking on a data mesh journey, right, you should do that fitment for the fabric of your organization, right? There are a lot of factors that come into that equation. Uh, what's the complexity of your organization? How agile do you need to be with your use cases? What's the uh, scale of your data sources? What are the diversity of your use cases from a consumer consumption and consumers uh, perspective, right? And, and, how do you think about evolving this? Do you have that sort of a, a need to sort of take on this overhead at this point of time or not, right? And and trust me, because data mesh sounds so cool to so many people, and often the new CDOs, <laughs> no offense to anybody, but often, often the new CDOs or chief analytics officers in a lot of organizations because they want to prove their mettle within their organization. And I'm sure you understand that, Scott, that this, these roles are under a lot of churn and there is a lot of pressure to prove their value in the organizations and something that's something that's taking the industry by the storm could look like a very good starting point to prove their uh, coin into the organization. So they often fell into this trap of uh, leveraging or starting a journey which they are not ready for, right? And <clears throat> in the microservices world, uh, uh, Martin Fowler or Martin Fowler wrote an article on how tall do you need to be in order to do microservices. And I think I can quote the same question that how tall do you need to be in order to do partake a data mesh journey? So I think uh, that's one thing that I would like to highlight. Yeah, I think that that FOMO is something that it's been funny because, um, you know, as somebody who's been talking a lot about data mesh myself and talking with Shamak as well, and we're both kind of concerned of that same way. And I think it's kind of nice to have, and, and I think microservices had that same approach, whereas maybe DevOps didn't because there were, it was a little bit more vendor driven in certain aspects, like, it, and it was a little bit more of an established practice, whereas data mesh has been kind of a pretty hard turn relative to uh, the way a lot of people have done. And so, you know, just Mac going, this stuff is crazy. Why, ha why we can't wait for another decade for these other things to continue to slightly move in. Let's, let's make a hard shift, but that so many of, of us that are 
looking to help people implement data mesh are also really pushing back on, do you actually need this? Is this worth yeah. it? Like, uh, uh, you know, return on investment, not just return, right? It is, okay, yes, this will mean that you're better at your data and analytics, but is that overhead worth it? And like, be honest about that overhead and that, you know, there's certain aspects of data mesh where I think certain organizations can start down their journey and whether they call it they're on doing data mesh or not, I I don't really care. Some, you know, I, we kind of talked about like, you should know if you're actually doing it or not and, and, and that, but at the same point, if you want to call it data mesh and you're not doing data mesh, I don't care. But that that is the juice worth the squeeze is this this costs money and it costs organizational all sorts of th- you know it, it it it's people process change like people process change may not be exact dollar money but it is you know it is people's time it is people's patience it is all of that stuff and so i, I really like hearing that there there's a lot of reasons to consider data mesh, but there's also a lot of reasons why you're not ready or it's not even the right fit for you. And it may be down the road and you can start to do some of the aspects and get some of the benefits, but that you don't have to take all of it on. But then the other aspect is, no, some of these organizations, you can't just pick and choose a little bit and and pretend that you're done. You're going to end up at sending yourself into a bigger mess. So like, what what are your signals that you're seeing for the people that, yeah, you really, really should look at this? Or what are the signals that you're seeing where people think they're ready and aren't? Or like, how can people differentiate which camp am I in or which camp should I be in? And then like, we can talk about as well, transitioning that into how do I get from one camp to the other? How do I go from I'm not ready, this isn't the right fit for me right now to yes, I, I'm going to prepare myself so when I am ready, I can start down that journey. Sorry, huge question, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we'll take it step by step uh, on, on how, do you, how do organizations understand which camp do they belong to and uh, uh, are they ready for data mesh or not? So I would say that there are a few interesting signals that, that we sort of catch on in, in a lot of organizations that I personally talk to. And... And one of them is their constant displeasure on the kind of initiatives that have been that they have been taking in in the data and AI space, and that constant pressure of not being able to prove their value, right? Uh, specifically in large enterprises, uh, we see that huge data platforms are being uh, undertaken. There is a huge investment that has gone in and the platform just keeps on building. You know, All we hear is the platform is being built. The platform is being built, but it doesn't ever come to uh, fruitation because that platform is trying to boil the entire ocean. So right, I would say the first signal is if you see that there are some lingering investments in your data and AI ecosystem, which are not giving you the right returns, where you're not able to see the value being delivered to your end customers, right? To your to your uh, internal users of data within your organization, your data analysts, your data scientists, your business analysts, right? The people who need data to hypothesize on on on, on things, you know, um, if they are not getting the right data at the right time in the right quality, that means something is going wrong, right? And that means that you need to relook at, 
at how the flow of data is within your organization, right? Um, so that's signal number one, uh, if that makes sense, uh, Scott. Then the then the other bit is uh, when we when we know that uh, you know there are huge central teams. It started off with say eight to ten people because that's the kind of number you start off when you are sort of looking at a team, right? I think uh, the two pizza rule team is still a very a good number to look at, right? But then when we when we start to see that we are adding more people, we are throwing more people to the problem because we believe that if I add more number of people to my platform initiative, it's going to go faster, right? That's another sort of a smell that I often see in a lot of organizations that their central teams, they become as huge as 100 plus people. And then I ask myself, like, what are, what on this earth are those 100 folks even doing in that sort of a setup, right? And what it really means under the hood is that the organization is moving incredibly slow, right? Uh, they are trying to understand, make sense, and capture data from almost all parts of their organization. And probably that's the reason they need so many people to sort of talk to so many different parts of their organization, right? So that's a sort of a smell number two, that when you see that you are throwing more people to a problem which can be solved with automation and making right process changes or making right uh, people changes from a team topology perspective or ways of working perspective. And when you don't do that, but you instead say that, let me conflate this entire uh, team so that it can go faster, right? So that's that's a second signal that I would say is, is very useful when I'm at least talking to our clients in assessing where they are, right? And and I think the third one is um, is about who owns the data, right? A lot of time um, when I speak to my to a lot of clients, whether they belong to the startups or the scale-ups or even large enterprises, there is this one big question that they have that it's hard for us to find who owns the data, who is the actual source of truth for this, for this particular data. And it's very hard for them to actually establish that lineage. Right. And when we are in that sort of a setup in a largish or even in a small size organization where we are struggling to identify who owns a particular set of data, it, it means something. It, it means that, again, our, our fabric of how the flow of information is happening within the organization or how the discoverability aspects are for your data at scale are broken. And that's the reason your data consumers are fighting hard. And, you know, there are long email trails, there are long <laughs> meetings and calls, which sort of yield no result, but often end up in, in sort of long trails of actually pinning down, okay, that's the team that owns this data. And then at the end, figuring out that probably they are not even looking at the data that you need for your experiment, right? So that's sort of a disappointment. And I have given this a name. I don't know if you like it or not. In Q innovation syndrome. So what it means is your innovation agenda is in queue. And why is it in queue? Because there are other perceived important initiatives that uh, the central team is trying to partake. And therefore, you can come back to us at a later point and uh, your request is in queue sort of a thing, right? You remember how you, we, in the olden days, there used to be some token system for <laughs> getting your call connected internationally to some other region, something similar like that. And, and that, in my mind, is opportunity cost, Scott, because if I have one great idea at a given point of time, and as a data consumer, 
who has some sort of an idea and experiment going on in their mind i am not able to conduct that that means there's an opportunity cost on what kind of positive impact it could have had on my business and on my investors it feels like a lot of what you're talking about there is just reactionary right if everything related to your data is reactionary it's i have a question and now i have to s- trace my way up instead of you've built a head right mm-hmm. like that there's this um constant problem of trying to take on too much trying to to do that not looking at the cost of coordination and not thinking ahead of hey let's slow down to speed up like let's let's actually work ahead and say well we're going to need to answer this and you know there may be four different ways of asking this question so let's let's actually think about how we would answer all of those and start to reliably create that information. And that's, you know, the whole data product thing and all that. But it's just also, you know, the number of times when I come into an organization, I'm focused on business process stuff. And I'm like, okay, so what are the actual questions you have? Not what's the point question you have today, but what are you trying to figure out and why? And let's, let's build ahead of that. It's just so, yeah. So, um, but I, yeah, I wanted to. So you you talked about kind of the the smells. It, are for those are those are smells that you have a problem. Are those smells that you're not ready, or are those smells that you're you need to to do something different? Like, how do you think about somebody then saying, okay, I'm assessing whether I've got you know I'm, I've got my my in innovation syndrome. Do I have to make changes before I could head on this data mesh journey, or should I start to look at that, or you know, and small organizations can have that too, and they shouldn't be taking on necessarily the overhead. So how does that translate into that kind of answering that question? Yeah, I, I think uh, if if you look at this from any organization size, right, whether it's a small size organization or a large um, enterprise, if they start to see these signals, right, it it at least for me, it means that they should reimagine or reevaluate how their organization is set up, right? What are the leakages? So I'm a big fan, uh, Scott, of value stream mapping. I'm sure you have heard of this uh, technique where you sort of lay down uh, a business process from a stream perspective, like, okay, this happens, then what happens next? What happens next and, and next and so on and so forth. And value stream mapping is a fantastic technique to identify how value gets exchanged or how handoffs happen between different parts of the organization, right? And it's a great way to identify the leakages, right? Um, Leakages in terms of uh, uh, people, in terms of process, and also in terms of technology, right? And, And I would say that any organization who wants to really think about where am I going wrong or what are the kind of things that I'm doing wrong can really look at this sort of a process, right? That create a value stream for some of the important business processes in your organization and try to identify where are we dropping the ball, right? Where is that leakage sort of getting inserted into the system and identify and prioritize amongst those leakages across the value stream and say that this is the one that I would love to plug, right? And and a lot of times, again, I, I don't say that think about data mesh any differently or think about it's about it's about thinking about how do I get value out of my data, right? Now that data could be operational data, that data could be analytical data, right? So I think the value stream approach is agnostic of 
what I'm trying to look for. It gives you problems that are there in your organization. And now how do you choose to solve that problem? Whether you will build an operational system to fix it or would you build some sort of a data-driven system to, to fix it or an analytical system to fix it is a choice that you that you sort of have, right? But that definitely serves as a neutral starting point for evaluating how to move the needle of innovation in your organization. And that works like a charm. At least I have seen that work wonderfully for some of our customers. And uh, yeah, I think that's how I would like to highlight it. So you're just saying we should have a point to the work that we're doing? What? No, no, I don't think I don't I don't agree with that at all. No, but I mean, that's way oversimplifying it. But yes, exactly what you're saying. Where do we actually have a problem? Not I've got a solution. I've got a hammer. and I'm looking for nails versus. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, kind of circling back a little bit to where have we seen this type of thing go wrong with microservices, with DevOps and things like that? How would you talk to people about where they're going to see the evolution or where do we need to see the tools start to evolve? Or like, how do you see the the evolution around data mesh playing out? Do you think that there's going to be very data mesh specific tools? I know Jamak has kind of talked a little bit about that we need to get away from this pipeline thinking. And, uh, you know, I've, I've started to think about it as kind of the, the human body has like kind of the core systems. And if something damages the core systems, things are really messed up. But if you hurt your finger, it's not that big of a deal. But the, the way that we do data, everything is so critically interconnected to anything if anything goes wrong it it becomes an issue and we're also you know the whole thing of layers and separating out um the the data from the information right we separate out the zeros and the ones and we process all of that and then we try and add back the context we try and add back you know these different layers of metadata and then we try and add back the interoperability instead of like treating it as if it's like one contained unit, um, you know, we're still seeing, you know, Jamak is still kind of evolving even how she would talk about that. So we're still pretty early days, but like, how do we think about where things need to go? Or how do you think what we've learned from the tooling and processes and all that evolution from the the microservices side, like what can people do themselves and what do people need to band together to kind of push on vendors to start doing as well. Like if you can give people a little bit of practical go forward advice. Absolutely. I think I would love to start on in this case uh, from the tooling perspective, uh, Scott, because that's, I think that's going to be helpful. So if you look at the um, microservices ecosystem and how it evolved, right? We realized that now we are breaking down uh, in system calls, right? The network calls that were inside a monolithic system, the transactions that we used to call them, right? Now we are taking them over the wire, right? You know, we, it's all happening over the network. And and we know that from our, the, the fallacies of distributed system that the network can go down. You cannot always rely on its resilience and, you know, the the fact that availability is can be compromised. So so basically we are we took a central process which was happening in inside a process and broke it down into multiple processes, right? And and we saw that with with this sort of a system where different services were doing different uh, jobs, right? Like from a Unix uh, philosophy perspective, 
each microservice was doing one thing and that was doing trying to do it right, right? And there used to be bounded context associated with a given team and that team used to develop microservices within that context, right? If we, if we look at a retailer sort of an example, then if there is an order management team, uh, a, a bounded context which is related to the orders, then that team probably is looking at creating services which takes care of, say, creating the orders, updating the orders, deleting the orders, the operational interfaces for interacting as a customer with the uh, orders uh, creation and all of those activities, right? Now, uh, we saw that given a slew of all of these services and for a given business process to accomplish, you needed a lot of them to cooperate, right? And if I am building some sort of a new flow or introducing a new process within the organization, I have to talk to multiple of them, right? So how do I discover? So that that became like an interesting problem, problem point that earlier I used to talk to one single team that probably understood the entire process, but now I have to understand which of the services should I be using to, to create this business process because different teams sort of own them, right? So the, the idea of discoverability is therefore not new, right? It goes back to the microservices era as well, where you wanted to do the service discovery, right? So I would say that service discovery as a tooling, like the likes of Consul from HashiCorp sort of evolved, right? Which made service discovery really, really simple, right? Similarly, I would say that uh, from a tooling perspective in the data mesh ecosystem as well, uh, I don't think we have to reinvent the wheel or the organizations have to completely think about custom bespoke software when it comes to how do I achieve discoverability for my data products or my data sets, right? That's where there's a lot of tooling that's coming up, which is, and I would say that's best left to the communities and the and the various vendors to drive that innovation because data discoverability is a known problem. And I'm sure that as we go forward, more and more interesting tooling will be evolve, will evolve in this uh, specific space, right? I think, uh, Again, I'm not affiliated to any organization or any open source uh, uh, community here, which, and I'm not using their names to promote them, but just in my experience, right? The LinkedIn Data Hub, uh, two years ago, the state it was in versus today, I think it's night and day, right? It has come come a long, long, long way. And I remember in some of our earlier projects on Data Mesh, when we were, you know, were working with sort of with early adopters, we had to also commit back to the main product line because there were some missing features, but now it has come a really, really long way. So I would say that some of these known problems or cross-cutting concerns that were there in the microservices ecosystem, like that of discoverability of services or monitoring of services or observability of services, these service, these concerns are equally applicable into the data ecosystem as well, right? And therefore, I would I would highly recommend that all of these be best left to some of the vendors who are doing great work in that in this space, and I would even go on to the length and say, uh, Scott, that a lot of tooling that exists in the in the microservices ecosystem, for for instance, in in your monitoring and observability space, the likes of Grafana or say your Prometheus, these toolings are still senseful and makes a lot of sense in the case of data mesh as well, right? It's about how do you sort of integrate into your uh, system. But having said that, you know, there are uh, organizations or product vendors who are investing in very specific capabilities from a data mesh standpoint, right? Where, for example, uh, data lineage is a very, very interesting problem, which we spoke about in the 
earlier question as well. And there are a lot of tooling that's coming up in this space, which helps in creating that audit of how data has been flowing within your organization and what sort of curations uh, has it been going through to arrive at a state where it is uh, right now, right? So it's going to be a mixed bag of existing tooling and some new tooling on on what are the needs from a data mesh uh, standpoint. Well, and, and I like when you're talking about um, observability and you, you you didn't throw out like kind of the data observability tools because I think the data observability tools, um, I, I think a big challenge I'm seeing with a lot of, of tooling is in the data space, it's been about when you're a vendor, it's been about locking people in. Even with with open source, it's about, I want to be the main pane of glass. And if you're trying to be the main pane of glass, you're a major pane in the dot, 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 but, right? Like, <laughs> you can figure out the rhyme there. But yes. <laughs> that with Grafana, Prometheus, things like that, even, even like a data dog is a main pane of glass, but it integrates into so many different things or honeycomb or whatever you want to use for, for those kind of observability aspects of, I think we have these trapped metadata problems and with, with data, it's not just about what is occurring. It's like, what does it mean? And that, you know, that adds just another extra complexity, right? Like when you think about um, on the operational plane and, you know, you've got like your data dog dashboard up, you're, you're looking at, what what are am I miss am I meeting my SLAs relative to uptime and performance and blah 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 or what's what's actually happening, and then with data you have to also be like and do people understand it and can they leverage it and can they use it so it becomes more difficult but we have so many more handoffs and kind of untrackable untraceable in the greater greater sense handoffs. And so we have so many more tools that are doing so many more little things. And so it just becomes more and more, and all of these tools want to trap their metadata. They don't want to share it with anybody else. And so, you know, like the ones that, that are like the, the data hubs or, you know, Atlas doing a little bit on this open metadata, like all these ones, they're trying to get to a little bit more around how do we actually share our metadata between systems? But yeah, I think, that's that's where I'm, I'm really frustrated with how far we have to go and how uh, talking to people, it is so much of, I can solve a myopic problem. And so I'm going to do that and I'm going to get paid well enough and I'm going to do that. And it's like, yeah, but, um, you know, I, I can't remember who was saying it uh, the other day, but they were saying like, I have so many handoffs between all of these things. Oh, it was uh, Ananth, Akaldurai. Uh, and so um, he was talking about that there isn't a holistic view of how I actually deal with my data, right? Versus on the microservices side, it's like I'm in my IDE and I'm coding how I actually do this thing versus in data, I have to switch between so many different systems. And so I hope we can get there, but I'm still, I'm not that... Uh, confident on that right now because we haven't seen the shift happen yet yeah yeah and if i if i were to add something on top of that uh, uh, scott um i would say if you look at the principles of data mesh right self-serve data platform happens to be like the backbone which holds the entire thing together right it's the it's the means to an end of how do you um develop a platform how do you think about creating that infrastructure within the organization which which can power your data movement 
on on infrastructure automation right so that's the whole idea and when we are thinking about the platform i think one thing that i like to think of is it's not about reinventing the wheel right there are a lot of tools that solve jobs a lot of problems right they do solve the problems really really well but when you are putting together that platform how do you think of it like a collection of existing tooling but stitched together in a way that it makes sense holistically for your organization right if i were to stitch a journey say from a data product developer perspective or say from a data product consumer perspective my platform should stitch together those tools in a seamless way and make them available for me right and i think that's the beauty of of getting all of these toolings together and and the innovation happens not on the tooling development like for an organization who is actually doing the data mesh journey but on how well do you design your abstractions right how well do you create your interfaces such that even if the technology landscape evolves you are able to evolve with that right you are not logged in into a specific uh, product because you have built the right abstractions for how do you want to develop your platform capabilities right and and that for me is a very powerful uh, construct right and and i think that's what is a very interesting proposition about what we do at thoughtworks that it's not about solving a problem in point of time but it's about building the right uh, uh, principles into the system or establishing the right principles architectural principles for the organization such that whatever decisions get taken in terms of tooling are aligned to that right for instance if i say that my principle is that i would build everything as an api as an application programming interface now whether there's a, that's a microservice whether that's an sdk doesn't matter but it's an but it's an api that that i'm writing that means it's an interface that means i'm thinking about the contract and as long as i am able to provide a standard contract to to my consumers it could be a data product developer it could be a data consumer i am good with whatever technology evolution happens because i will take care of maintaining that interface and contract with my stakeholders right so as a platform i am looking at the various stakeholders or customers and i am building my platform capabilities with that process thought process in mind Yeah, I, I think what you're talking there sounds a little bit like building a good sports team, especially in the sports that are more kind of free flowing, like maybe uh, a soccer slash football. You know, um, where it's not about I have the best players; it's about the interaction points with each other and being able to say, "Oh, okay, we're struggling in this way, so I can sub somebody off and bring somebody on, and we can augment the way that we're approaching this." But I do kind of wonder. uh and you know i i wrote down you know build the right approach to solve problems instead of focusing on the specific problems right serves you better in that long run it may not get you to the fastest value right now but it gets you to the <laughs> persistent building of value and not uh having everything kind of fall down on you but how do you think about in data anti-corruption layer right so talking about in the microservices like you know you think about that at the actual service to service level but you don't have to have as much of an anti-corruption layer between tools on the microservices side simply because the way that http and like all this stuff like the way that we're you know tcpip like all that fun stuff is established 
you know, kind of law almost, and we don't have that on data and, and we've been hoping for it, but it's not, uh, you know, I, anytime I talk to people, it's, they're like, yeah, you know, it, it would be awesome if that existed, but it doesn't. So how do you think about building that platform? You know, and, and I think we can use this to transition into in general, selecting your blast radius. Like, how do you think about like adding in these, these tools to, to, help augment your capabilities, but not becoming overly reliant on that specific tooling. And then we could talk about how that transitions into other ways of selecting your blast radius. But I'd love to kind of hear what you all have learned, especially from helping, you know, tens, hundreds of companies, I don't know, by now that are building out their their data mesh journey, their data mesh platform. Yeah. So when I I think about the blast radius, uh, Scott, there are multiple aspects that again come to it, right? Um, now, in this case, it would be good to start from an organization perspective, right? And I'm a big fan of this fact that you do not have to uh, think about data mesh as as going into the entire parts of your organization. You don't have to solve and change the entire organization at one point, right? So, you when I when I say a blast radius, for me, it also means that. How do you identify that one business department or that one functional department within your organization who is courageous enough, right? I think courage is a word to be noted here. Who is courageous enough to sort of undertake this complexity and, you know, change their ways of working, change the way they think about uh, flow of information, change the way they think about ownership and identifying the problems that that specific unit is struggling with and solving and piloting it with, say, this new paradigm, right? You do not have to touch all parts of your organization. No, I'm sorry. If if somebody comes and tell, tells you that today the data mesh, you need to change your entire organization on day one, uh, I won't take it uh, in a very <laughs> good spirit because that's not true. You can't do that. You never did that in the microservices space as well, right? You remember how when we were taking and breaking down monoliths, we used to take some part of the functionality, strangle that out into that ecosystem, and then gradually uh, build and migrated and transform the way we broke that down in a very similar fashion, right? Uh, it's an analogy, but when we think about data mesh journey, we, we think about the right department, the right set of people who have that appetite to, to challenge some of their thought processes and, and kickstart their journey and prove the success, right? Prove the success to the larger organization. So I have this, again, a new quote that I learned from one of my teachers that nothing succeeds like success itself, right? What it means is that unless you have success stories, it will be very hard to build trust within the organization. And therefore, when we are thinking about data mesh journeys, I think it's very important to create that blast radius and contain the impact of of a pilot or an experiment into that blast radius. And if that gets successful, you have a great story to take to the other parts of the organization because then people would believe you, right? It's unlike the other um, uh, extreme where the data platform is being built. It's being built and the infrastructure is being put together, but it never comes to fruition. So I think that that incremental delivery of value is what is extremely important in in anything that we do with a, with any organization, right? So I would say that's the way to protect our investment. That's the way to protect the trust 
of the people and 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 that's where when it's a smaller blast radius i think having support from the top down perspective is very important right so from a top you have executive support right there are senior executives within within organizations who believe that this paradigm is suitable for their organization and it's going to derive the value that they're looking for and the bottom means the teams who are actually going to be impacted because now we are telling the product teams to also start owning their <laughs> analytical data right so there is a certain change in the way that they will be looking at the organization so all of that culmination in a smaller blast radius in a given functional unit is a very very good first step to to kick start the journey and and i also believe that it incurs less cost because we are not telling that let's reorganize all your domains no we are working within the existing boundaries of the organization without touching and maneuvering too many variables at the same time so if there are multiple variables uh, i would not be a fan of taking and making changes to all of them right identify the ones that are most important to you and then just change them record the experiment and then move forward to the others right something like that like a very scientific way to conduct an experiment I yeah I actually did a mesh musing on that episode 170 of when when should you do your reorg and it's literally that of like yeah. if you're saying I'm going to do everything up front then no. you're crazy but if you also say I'm not going to change absolutely anything then it's like then how are you planning on changing what you're going to deliver because it's it's you know it's a little bit of chicken and egg but it, so when you think about that kind of blast radius like circling back a little bit on the tooling like how do you think about not becoming overly reliant on a specific tool so that it is about the capabilities um a couple of things that we could go into that i've heard is if you think of your platform as a single platform, you're doing it wrong. It should be a set of capabilities that are delivered via a set of interfaces and that you want to limit the amount of, of requirement that your interface ties to your actual uh, underlying implementation. We had a, a panel on data user experience and how that, that, you know, so many people underlying, the underlying technology decisions are what drives the entire user experience and that's not great but like you know how do you think about making that so that we aren't okay i have made the choice to use snowflake over spark and therefore everything i do has to be tied exactly to snowflake and then all of a sudden snowflake you know 5x is their pricing or something you know they, they there's a couple of companies that like to buy companies and you know they get bought by private equity or something and then you know private equity is like we're going to charge 5x or whatever it's like no don't do that but um then all of a sudden you have to rip absolutely everything out versus like how you know and and how important is it to not become at all reliant on anything because then you don't get to use any of the cool features. <laughs> you don't get to actually leverage the technology versus the very, very basic of, of everything. So like, how do you think about talking to people about that blast radius when it comes to tooling selection and things like that? Yeah, yeah. I think, again, that's a very good question on, and I think of it like platform abstractions, right platform abstractions, right? When we start the journey of, of doing a data mesh, right? I would say that the platform is the first piece which we start to think about along with the first set of uh, data products that are gonna serve a specific business uh, use case, right? And I've, I think that's needless to say that 
the platform gets built enough in terms of capabilities that are required for my first set of data products, right? So that's the first point of protection that you're not building the platform with all the rigor. Let's build the platform and then the data products will start using it. No, the platform is getting built along with how the data products expect the capabilities to be, right? So the platform itself is being built like a product. Now, there is a reason why I start with this, uh, Scott, because when you are building something as a product, right, your interfaces become very important for you, right? How do you make your product usable becomes very important to you. And therefore, underneath, you could use any sort of technology, right? Whether it's a Databricks, whether it's an EMR running on uh, AWS, or whether it's a Databricks on Azure or AWS, or whatever is the cloud that you are using, the underlying implementation is abstracted away by how the platform creates and makes that uh, capability available to its to its users, right? And I'm using the word users here because I'm talking about the platform users who are themselves the developers or say the data analysts or the data scientists and the likes of that, right? Now, so that's where, that's the first part, right? Then, then when you're building your platform, there are certain principles that I suggest or recommend very, very strongly, which is, that you bake in evolvability as a first-class concept, right? Uh, I think I'm a big fan of evolutionary architectures as well, right? At any point of time, there are 10 different things that you could do, but they present themselves as a trade-off, right? Not everything that, that you have to do has to be right on the first go, but then how do you evolve your evolve your system in such a way that it it does not have a bad impact on what's already being built or what's already built, right? One of the simple examples could be that today uh, in my platform, I'm only providing batching as a capability because all my data products that are being built at the moment who are going to be using the platform do not have a streaming use case. They only rely on batching because the requirements are near real time for my data products, right? So I'm not building the streaming capability. I'm only investing and building my my batching uh, 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 capability, right? And while I'm building my batching capability, I am creating and devising those interfaces in such a way that if tomorrow I were to make even streaming as a capability available into my platform, all those data products that were built previously when that capability was not there can get that update, can, can evolve themselves to also use the new capabilities that that the platform is putting in place, right? And the only way that can happen is if there are clear separation of interfaces, if there are clear separation of how the utilities and tools are being embedded into the platform such that it creates a good developer experience for the developers, for the data product developers who are going to be using the, the platform, right? So that's, in my mind, is you know some of the techniques that we can use to prevent ourselves from being completely logged into a one single vendor, one single product, you know, and make it like a choking effect that if they sort of pull off, the rug beneath my feet is sort of taken off, right? And and to add on to that, right? I mean, automation in my mind is a fantastic uh, thing. And that's the, that's the holy grail of the self-serve platform, right? How do we think about infrastructure as code to... In a, in a very generic manner, I'm a big fan, fan of Terraform, right? I mean, you are, the way you leverage Terraform to create cloud agnostic 
constructs, although there is, you know, <laughs> it's not entirely cloud agnostic because if you're working with AWS, you have to use the AWS uh, uh, operators and providers. But but you'd get the point, right, that I am decoupling and creating a layer in between which allows me to resurrect or create my infrastructure from scratch um, without thinking about the implementation or which cloud it is being developed on, right? So I think these kind of abstractions is what makes a good blast radius to not be completely reliant on the underlying implementation or tooling. Apologies if there's any jump here in logic or anything. We had an issue with the recording. Yeah, so, and I think um, a lot of what you're talking about there as well, like when you're talking about those abstractions and that that interface and stuff, um, what I'm getting is it's not saying that you can't leverage the specifics of something, right? It's that like you can't say, okay, there's this feature of whatever XYZ technology and I really want to use this, even if it's like the cloud vendor stuff, right? It's that I have to make sure that I do create an abstraction layer around that. So if I have to move that to something else, I may have to rebuild certain aspects of it, but I have the ability to do that and that, uh, we talked about it a little bit earlier and something that uh, Jamak and I have been talking about of everything is crucial one-to-one interconnections. Everything is so interconnected. Uh, we were talking about kind of maybe even the, the concept of a, uh, of a cable cabinet. You know, have you seen those things? There's like even a thing called like cable porn on, um, on like Reddit and stuff where people just have immaculate, amazingly done, um, uh, cabinets of cable for their their networking and things like that. But when you think about uh, on the data side, like all of these things are zip tied together. And so every single time you have to make any change, you have to, uh, you know, uh, cut through a bunch of zip ties and move them all around and things like that. But that we can make it so that the cost of making those changes, we don't want to make them willy nilly, but that the cost of making those changes isn't nearly as expensive as it could be. So that's what I'm getting from that. But like, um, I, I think where I'd be kind of asking you if I'm, if I'm somebody that's talking to you about this of, do you have any specific, you know, not even like I'm going to ask for a customer example. If you tell me this customer name and the blah, 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 but like, how have you seen somebody doing this? Or, you know, we talked a little bit about you're working on a reference prep platform for for ThoughtWorks. So like when you have a reference platform, it shouldn't be you must use these technologies versus you you should be finding these capabilities. So how do you think about having that conversation? Because it's easier said than done, right? You yeah. go, okay, we're going to create the abstraction around it, but that's words. That's, that's abstracting away, creating the abstractions. It's just the words around it. So how do you think about having that conversation to make it something that people can go, I get it now, I can actually move forward? Yeah, yeah. I think that's, again, a good question, uh, Scott. So uh, I would like to start this with thinking about the ubiquitous language of data mesh itself, right? So in a domain-driven parlance, we do talk about uh, the ubiquitous language of the business, right? Where we model the services, where we model what does a given term mean, and it means the same for the business as well as for the technology team, right? Similarly, how do you model the data mesh landscape within your organization. What do you mean by a data product? What do you mean by a data set? What do you mean by 
uh, when you want to fetch what sort of schema is underneath a specific data set, right? How do you search for your data sets? Now, if you think of all of these asks, you know, ask questions, in my mind, they're all interfaces on my on my platform, right? They are all abstractions on my platform. They are all, if you were to think of it in, in a resourceful way, from a REST perspective, they are all endpoints onto my platform, right? Now, that's how you model or think about the language in which you would want to establish data mesh within your organization. And, and when you do that, right, if, for instance, if you're using a Colibra for a data catalog or for your governance needs, you're not putting Colibra as a forefront. You're putting slash data product slash search as, as a header where the intent is that this endpoint is going to help you search for the sets, the data products, the data sets that are available within the ecosystem, but underlying it is hitting and talking to the Colibra APIs to fetch that information from, from the various data products that are there in the, in the ecosystem. So you, you get the point that the way you front your interfaces is getting decoupled from how those valuable information is being fetched at, at when that API is being called, right? So that's one way or one example to, to understand this in a very specific uh, fashion. The, the second example that I would love to give from the reference platform itself is when you say that you want to be able to read data from an input port or you want to be able to read data from an output port and then read it into your input port, right? When you are talking about combining uh, two data products from an upstream and a downstream perspective, then what is the language that you're using? Do you say I'm reading from this input port of this data product versus do you say that I'm reading from the S3 bucket? Now, the important thing to understand here is that my input port for a given data product uh, or the output port that I'm reading from could be an S3 bucket, right? But then that implementation doesn't creep up into the face of the developer, right? That is abstracted away by the platform under a nice, beautifully built SDK, which says that all you need to do is supply the name of the data product. Probably the you need to have the right permission to get an access to that uh, particular output port, and you can use the ubiquitous language of data mesh to say, read from this output port and write to this input port. You, you get the point, Scott, that we are talking about well-defined abstractions in this case. And, and tomorrow, when I create, say, another, when I add another object storage into my system, say tomorrow I want to become multi-cloud and now I'm using AWS, it's S3, but if I move to GCP, I'm going to use, say, Google Cloud Storage, then I add another uh, uh, implementation for the same interface, which is capable of reading and writing from, say, a GCS object storage, but my API interface is still the same, right? So that's the beauty of what I mean really by abstractions, what I mean really by thinking about your interfaces in and defining them by modeling what are the interactions that you would need for your, for your mesh ecosystem. Kind of what's actually happening instead of like what what what's happening at the conceptual level of data flows and things like that instead of hard coding and going go to this exact bucket and exactly. if I'm in if I'm in a different AWS region uh, you know I did the shortcut for this bucket so if I'm in the same region it goes to that bucket but if I'm in a different region it tries to find this bucket that doesn't exist and boom it's all like we we had this uh, when I was at Tenable with um, 
uh, a couple of, of calls that were going a little bit wrong with um, everything was calling back to US East 1 because somebody had had uh, hard-coded in this thing. And so I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Like all these different regions should be calling their own local region. And it, it like we reduced our latency because of this call. This call was kind of a startup-y type call uh, to make sure that somebody wasn't banned. You know, it wasn't like, are, is this one on the blacklist? And so it was, it was causing some performance issues. And then all of a sudden, you know, most of the people in the world's performance issues or their performance improved considerably simply because somebody had misrouted the way that this, uh, that the SDK was built for, you know, specific internal. So I think a lot of what you're talking about is just like, and, and uh, we had an episode with uh, Vlad Kononov who wrote a, a book about learning domain driven design and, and, so, somewhat it's ubiquitous language, somewhat it's published language, because published language is how you actually talk from the domain to the the rest of the organization. But you are talking about what's the ubiquitous data mesh language. And so it exactly. gets really it gets really complicated when you get overly specific on what exactly those terms mean. But I, I, I like that a lot. Um, so we're, we're, we're coming up kind of on on um, an hour here and, you know, really enjoyed this conversation. But I'd like to kind of wrap around one question that I get a lot and that I think you've, you've been able to see so many of these things that you can give people a lot of, of uh, help here, which is like, how do, right? How do I start? How do I get going? Like what's the early uh, success patterns or what's like, how do you think about being realistic? How do you think about, an organization is saying, okay, I've, I've passed your, your smell tests. I've passed the, the things I think I'm ready. Where do you think what, I mean, maybe if you want to give anti-pattern advice or if you want to give pattern advice or whatever, like how do people think about <laughs> kind of getting to a place where it's not like we have won, we have done data mesh, but that we're at least, headed along the path and we're, we're maximizing our chance of success on this journey? Yeah, I think it's the answer is very simple, uh, Scott. Solve something that that your organization is going to get benefited by, right? It Anything that adds business value to the organization is a very good starting point. And as I said, and I'm, as I mentioned earlier, um, identify the functional unit or the department within the existing domains of the organization who can undertake this challenge and solve a problem for them. So, so you, you know the concept of fluency, right? That you do not need to do 100% of all things, right? So if you look at the palm, the fingers are of different size, right? What it means by that is in the context of fluency that you need to do enough on changing your organization or you need to do enough on building the platform, the first set of capabilities, or you need to do enough on building the first set of data products for a given use case that's important and that's how you start or set yourself up for success, right? Anytime you have the urge <laughs> to boil the ocean, take a deep breath and say, I'm going to stop. I'm going to look step back and I'm going to look at what is the most pressing problem that I need to solve in order to build trust, prove that value, do minimal changes to the organizational fabric, do minimal investments, prove the value and then move forward, right? So that's that would be my advice um, on how to think about starting your journey. So, so what you're telling me uh, is that I should 
find the hardest, most difficult challenge I can ever get to and solve it as much as possible and that it's totally okay if it's going to take three years. No, 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 you're, you're not saying that? No, <laughs> build value and build value fast, right? I mean, something yeah. that you can demonstrate value in, an, in a matter of six to seven months, I think that's a good enough time frame for me in my mind to uh, prove the value for some sort of a, of a concept. And that has been my regular style of working with a lot of clients, Scott. I'll be very honest that clients are also skeptical and we also want to give them a good assurance and a good healthy start. And that time frame for me, at least personally, works out really well. It establishes trust. It solves the pressing problem. And again, we have to be very, very careful with what we are signing up for because it's you. And when I say that you implement a use case, a value use case, you can implement that use case for 10 years and then also not being done, right? But then how do you pick up a thin slice of that use case that it still adds business value, that it still you know, moves the needle on some of the KPIs or metrics that, you, that are important for your business? And then you prove that this is moving the needle in the right direction. I think that's the most important bit to, to set right, right? Identifying the business problem, identifying the right measures of success from a thin slice perspective, and then building enough platform capabilities, just building enough set of data products to move forward. And that would be my advice for anybody who's starting up on this. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, a lot of what you're, you know, obviously I was being sarcastic about it, but like, yeah, exactly what you're talking about. I, I do wonder on that six to seven months, because I've talked to some people and they say, my organization won't let me sit around for six to seven months until I prove value. And so that could be another smell test or, or that you do find a smaller scope problem and you go, we're really not going to prove out that we can actually do data mesh. We're, we're proving out that we can potentially do it. And, uh, but if I don't have enough time to actually do this, if I have to get to a, a working prototype in eight weeks from start to finish and I don't have any of these capabilities known and built, then maybe my organization isn't ready for data mesh because they're not ready to, they're, they're only looking to get to the value instead of there is a lot of value in the learning as to how to do this repeatedly. If I have to only focus on getting to the value and that's the most important part, then you're not really in a position where you can do data mesh because you have to have the investment in the learning. You have to be able to spend some time to understand what are we actually trying to do. So, yeah. Um, so uh, we've, we've covered a whole heck of a lot of things. I know there's about a million other things that we, we could go into for uh, a lot. But um, is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd uh, that you want to or any way that you'd kind of like to wrap up the episode anyway? You want to kind of put a button on anything? Yeah. There's one last thing that I would like to highlight, Scott that um, although the way the data mesh principles are laid out, they facilitate each other, right? And there are, there are interconnections between them. This, they facilitate each other, they support each other. Uh, but I would come on the record and say that it's not important to start with all the principles at the same time, right? Uh, as an organization, you could have different starting points, right? Uh, one organization's data mesh journey is not equal to another organization's data mesh journey. And therefore, your starting points 
the way you approach the problem the way you break down the problem could look very very different and that's absolutely okay because it's a journey and it's very much dependent upon the context and and the the way the organization is laid out so do not panic if you are doing things that are very different from some from some some of your competitors who are probably trying to do the same thing because depending upon the industry for example a bank or a regulated space might be very very interested in how to establish federated computational governance before the uh, data as a product could be established right and 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 that's a good enough starting point as as long as they have it as an intention that they are looking at the others but they are starting their journey by focusing a lot more on one of the principles so i don't think that it's it's an anti pattern to not start with one specific focus area and gradually make your way into getting others or other principles also getting highlighted into into your journey right so and and that is because inter- that is actually contrarian to a lot of the way because a lot of people say at least take a thin slice of every one of the pillars but like the the thing where a lot of people get in trouble is i'm just going to move forward with no governance and so yeah. are you saying that they can move forward with literally no governance or are you saying that it you're the way that you slice from all four of the pillars one can be very thin and one can be very thick and that's exactly. okay okay yeah, that's what I meant. Like from a fluency perspective, you would just do enough of what's needed for your for your experiment or your pilot to move forward, right? You would not want to try and boil the entire ocean. I think that's a very important aspect to to understand. Yeah, I, I see that with access control, especially of people trying to yes. do this automated access control. And it's like, we don't even know how to do analytical APIs very well right now, right? Exactly. Like, we don't know how to do that. So you trying to do automated access control that's aware of role when role-based access control doesn't really work in data because there's a lot more specifics, you know, all that. Yeah. Anyway, I, I could go on and on on that. But, um, <laughs> well, Fanya, uh, thank you so much for spending the, the, the time here. Um I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that would love to follow up with you. Where's the best place to do that? Is there anything specific you'd like people following up about? Yeah, I think uh, LinkedIn would be a best way to get in touch with me, uh, Scott. And I think we can share my LinkedIn handle in the show notes, uh, which we're going to publish. And I would say that uh, if there are organizations and leaders who are listening to this podcast and they're interested in finding out more about what this is about and how can they get started. I would love to chat up. Um, You can reach out to ThoughtWorks. And there's another call for request here that if people want to hear about more topics and more experiences, I think it would be good to also follow up on that, that what are the other pain points that uh, people have, organizations have, and how can, uh, from a ThoughtWorks perspective, we bring out that experience and uh, rally some of those learnings to the community at large. Yeah, I've been asking for that same thing of people tell tell me what you want me to cover. Like, what do you want? You're saying this is hard. Okay, get specific around what are you having challenges with? I think we need to be a lot. The data community, I think, in general, has been like, you can't talk about it unless you say you're doing it perfectly. And we have to get past that. We have to be vulnerable. We have to be able to say, this is really hard. And that I'm going to share some information with you. So I, I, I love that sentiment. And I think it's it's really great and helpful to everybody. So Vanya, thank you so much for your time here today. And as well, uh, thank you everyone out there for listening. Thank you. Thank you so much, Scott, for having me here.
I'd again like to thank my guest today, Vanya Seth, Head of Technology for ThoughtWorks India and the Global Data Mesh Guild Lead for ThoughtWorks. You can find a link to her LinkedIn in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left DataStax, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout for streaming and real-time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information-as-a-service firm. Our offerings are affordable, and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about, like, going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what, what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well. And have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.